Well, I wasn't expecting it to be about trees. I mean, I started by thinking about just war and our relationship with war and how we relate to different wars in different ways. You know, because, uh, you know, and how there's this weird thing where wars with whiteness are treated differently than wars without whiteness. And so I just started going in there, but then Deuteronomy spends a decent amount of time just talking about the trees. And I think that is tough to ignore. So when the war in Ukraine started, uh, I, I wanted to start thinking about war, um, just because everybody was. And, uh, and and I found this one really interesting because it just became this sea of news that was just dripped into our faces constantly. And, and the war in Ukraine, and specifically, became a microcosm of just a whole bunch of other things that are happening in our world and in our lives, like the, the, the amount of misinformation and disinformation, and we have to take sides, and we have to we have to sift through all of this stuff. And then there's the added implication of like, certainly in the Western world, we have more attention paid to the war in Ukraine than any other numerous wars that are going on. And we end up in these just cycles of information and disinformation and radicalization and, and, and it making us choose to be in these extremes on all sides. And, and I think I am of the radical opinion, uh, as we are here at the, the Dirt City Bible Hour, that the uh, nations should not attack other nations, just as a general rule. Uh, that's what we're trying to get to. And we also feel like it's uh, here at the Dirt City Bible Hour that it's a little bit weird. Um, and it's okay for it to feel weird, the amount of attention that this war in Ukraine gets in contrast to wars in Yemen or Syria or Ethiopia or even Mexico. So there's a whole lot uh, about this that just left me feeling confused and and, and overwhelmed. Um, and especially as your my opinion of war has changed as I've gotten older. I grew up really fundamentalist and, and the rules of fundamentalism were that what the government did, if the government, especially if the government was right wing, uh, in attacking other nations was, was right. That was what we grew up with. I grew up in the shadow of the cold war. And I remember watching all those documentaries and after school specials about what to do in the event of nuclear war, because the, the Soviets, as we, we would also call them the Russians synonymously as well. But, um, that they were always out to destroy our way of life with the godless communism that was going to be attacking us. And then, you know, as I got older, like you sort of realize that like, I know maybe Jesus Christ wouldn't have voted for Ronald Reagan and agree with, agreed with everything that he said. And then, as you get older as a Christian and come into maturity, there's this other option of pacifism, which also didn't really agree with me either. The, the pacifists are very loud and there's a lot of evidence and good evidence that, that Jesus would have been a pacifist and that war is always wrong. However, I was never able to do it simply because like if, if imagine a flight of stairs and at the top of that stairs are, are people that I love or even just regular people, but, but for this experiment, people that I love, my family. And at the bottom of those stairs are people wanting to do violence to the people at the top of the stairs. And I am in the middle of that staircase. Um, 
in that moment, I'm not a pacifist. And, and I, as much as I, I could try and convince myself otherwise, I, I, that is who I am as a person. And I would do violence and throw myself on the throne of grace if, uh, if I had to do violence to protect the people that I love. So it gets complicated. Because what is the difference between my family being at the top of a staircase and, and the, the stream of John Wick bad guys at the bottom of the staircase and, and a country that believes that its citizens, the people that it loves, are in danger and, and the stream of John Wick bad guys are the people on the other side of the, uh, of the world who are attempting to do violence to them. It, 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 it's more complicated than we think it is. And but then the reality is, is also, as I've gotten older, is that I used to believe in kind of a West Wing world. And I think a lot of us did, that our political and national leaders were made up of, of smart people who spoke in long paragraphs. And they had this inherent generic goodness that even if they disagreed about things, that their efforts were to try and do the right thing for the most people if they could. Uh, and that was the West Wing worldview. But as we've gotten older, and I think we've gotten a little bit more jaded and more cynical, we realize that we don't live in a West Wing world. We live in kind of a Veep world. <laughs> people don't speak in long, eloquent paragraphs. They speak in short, sweary insults. And uh, they don't act out of a, a generic goodness and goodwill. They act out of selfishness and fear and, uh, and the most base animal instincts. And that affects how we view wars. I mean, I think historically, I, I think we can say that war is always evil. But is it sometimes a necessary evil? I am glad that we at a period of time about 80 years ago uh, officially fought nazis you know and i think it's good to fight nazis now i think violence is always bad but if we're left with the option of just allowing the most evil of people to continue to do what they're uh, what they're going to do that 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 feels wrong doesn't it and that's why I think, as a person who is informed by the Bible, and if you care about the Bible at all or believe in it, or if, even if you don't and you feel like the veep rulers of your world are trying to use the Bible to justify it, their actions in, in whatever country that they happen to be invading at the moment, I think it's fair for us to use the Bible then to ask some questions about what makes an ethical war and what doesn't make an ethical war. And the Bible actually has some rules for that. And I think that we're actually... Uh, going to be surprised by what it says. So the first thing is we're looking at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, and it uh, basically is rules of how to go to war. And it starts off like this. It says, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an armor greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God, who, you, who brought you up out of Egypt, will be with you. Now, I want to back up a little bit and just start with the when. Um, some people are upset already and I get it because, uh, you think that in the world that God is creating and in the Bible, there ought not to be any wars. And in Deuteronomy, which is in the Torah, which is the instructions for the people of God of how they're supposed to live as a society with God in charge, you would expect that it would be like, Hey, maybe don't go to war against people. Um, 
But the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, in that part of the story, doesn't deal with a perfect world. It deals with an imperfect world made up of fallible humans just like you and me. And especially the Old Testament, especially the Torah, gives rules for how to operate in an imperfect world. And in an imperfect world, it seems that the Bible understands that sometimes people are going to go to war, Um, that sometimes it might be necessary to go to war. Uh, And as much as we would love to live in a perfect world where that didn't have to take place, uh, we don't live there yet. We're in Deuteronomy 22. 20, 21, 22. The, the perfect world comes in Revelation 21 and 22, where there is no more war or mourning or crying or pain and death and, and, and pain or shall be no more. Like that's the, the, the world where the narrative story of the Bible ends up, but we're not there yet. So to judge a, a current reality by a future perfection is, is a little bit unfair according to the text. So, but the basic understanding is, is if you're going to go to war, then God's going to be on your side. And because God is on your side, you get to do something really interesting. And this happens in, in verses five through nine. And I find this really interesting about who has to go to war. So this is the rules that the people are supposed to abide by. And this is, this is all people from the, from the, from the, the king down to the, the lowest peasant. All of them abide by the same rules in the Bible's world. Okay. This is what it says. The officer shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may get to live in it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else may enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else may marry her. And the officer shall add, is anyone uh, afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. And when the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. And I find this passage so very interesting because basically the rule for war is that no one has to go to war unless they want to. You have so many excuses to get out of war at this point. Like if you just built something, it's like, nah, war's dangerous. You should just stay home and like live in your house for a bit. Enjoy it. If you planted a vineyard, you need to get some wine into you before like you did the work. You deserve to to, to reap the benefits. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? It's like, look, you are engaged, my friend. You need to go home. You need to 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 have some some marital intimacy, and do not go to war. God will be fine without you going to war. And even the afraid or faint-hearted, even if you're cowardly, there's no shame. Like, there's no like you're a bad person. It's just like, hey, is anyone scared that they might just die randomly too? Okay, you can go home, and we'll just go on without you. And I think that there's a fascinating way of approaching the war in this because first of all there's zero coercion no one is is drafted forced into battle that is not the way it ought to go and 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 even interest and i think this is interesting in perspective of like how we most of our countries in the western world are volunteer armies but i think it's interesting that to ask the question that are they really you know especially when you're dealing with people in poverty People who have, have come from 
uh, long lines of just not seeing very many options for how they're going to live their lives and and join the military because this is a way to change their lives. And and and, and I, I'm sort of in this in-between stage where it's just like I totally respect what they're doing, but I hate that there is a system where people who are poor feel like they have to go to war in order to drag themselves out of poverty. Uh, I like I, I think that that's an interesting way to look at this. This this whole way of approaching war is that it is by definition non-coercive. No one has to go who doesn't want to go. Okay. Uh, and then the Bible says something really interesting next. It says, when you mark up, march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. And if they accept, open their gates and all the people shall be subject and forced labor shall work for you. And I think that this is like, again, if, if we're starting from the standpoint, and I agree that all war is bad and we shouldn't be in coercive war. Yes, I 100% on side with that. But we also just, if you're going to do this thing that is bad, this is how you do it. And and I think it's interesting for us to think about when our countries go into war, have they genuinely made its people an offer of peace? Often in, in wars in, in our century, they seem to be fought between, and have been throughout human history, between... Uh, a narrow cabal of powerful people and another narrow cabal of powerful people. And all of us end up taking the punishment and dealing with the effects of their intersign beef. And what this says is make its people an offer of peace. Uh, that the people who are living in the city matter. Now, you might say that I'm being entirely too generous and that, you know, the forced labor thing is there. And that's absolutely fine. You can, we can focus on that as well. It, it still sounds pretty shitty for the people who agree for, uh, a, <laughs> to, who agree to just open up the gates and let you in. But eh, there, the, this is the reality of the ancient world. It continues, when the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, Put to the sword all the men in it. And as for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. Okay. Gross. I don't like it. Uh, and I hate it. Uh, and, and it's not cool. However, there's always an issue in war and how you decide who is a combatant and who is a non-combatant. And... I've watched 18 hours of documentaries about the Vietnam War. And one of the issues in that is they treated entire villages and most of the, the indigenous population as combatants. Everyone was a combatant um, because you could be harboring. They, they, they said that you could be harboring enemies, that you could be communicating with them, that you could be passing on information. Everyone became a combatant and therefore everyone became fair game. Uh, this is interesting because it limits the combatant population to the men and then children, women, everyone else, non-combatants. And yes, it's still gross, but there's a rule. And we've seen in our century, our countries entering into wars where there is no rule about who is a combatant and who is a non-combatant. In Canada, there's a very specific issue of this with a, with a man named Omar Khadr. Uh, and he was uh, detained. He was His father was, was part of kind of the al-Qaeda structure in Afghanistan. He, as a child, was with um, his father. Um, 
the Americans attacked the base that they were at. His father uh, was killed. Omar Khadr was injured. And, and in the fighting, it is alleged that he took the lives of multiple American soldiers. He spent time in Guantanamo Bay. He was a kid. At the very least, he was 15. And I'm not trying to say that anything is that he, what he did was right or or anything, but it's a messy situation. And according to the Bible, he might have he like, and certainly according to treaty rules that, that that the United States and Canada are governed by, he was a child. And as a rule, children cannot be combatants. I know that there are things that are that are child there are child soldiers, but but once the immediate danger is done, we no longer treat child soldiers as soldiers. We treat them as children. And I think that this is an important distinction that that when we if if we're part of countries that say that they're using the Bible as a way to define how they engage in war, then it's fair to hold them to the standard. Have you made a hard and fast definition about who is a combatant and who is a non-combatant? And are children considered non-combatants? Because the Bible considers them non-combatants. OK, so. Still have, and and this is really interesting. I'm going to skip ahead to 21 because there's something else interesting that happens here in terms of how we deal in war with people who are more victims of war than are participants in war. And this is from Deuteronomy, very next chapter, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21, verse 10. Now, trigger warning, this is going to involve talk of uh, sexual assault and violence against women, not in any sort of detail, but just acknowledging it. So if you want to skip ahead, go ahead. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 10. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand and then you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and make her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when she was captured. And after she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go into her and be your husband and she shall be your wife. And we all understand what that means. That is, uh, if you're an adult, that uh, if you're a child listening to this, uh, ask your parents what that means. If you're not a child listening to that, we understand that that means sexual relations. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. So this is what we know from our century. Violence against women is a side effect of war. And there are even stories now about Ukrainian soldiers engaging in... uh, rapes and sexual assaults. There are stories of Russian soldiers engaging in rapes and sexual assaults. And and I think that the safest thing to do when we hear those stories is to believe them. Because we get into this tension, well, their guys would have done that, but our guys are good guys and they wouldn't have done that. Well, from the beginning of time... Sexual assault and violence of women and violence against women has been a side effect of war. And I think it's interesting that that the Bible puts into it, even as horrific as this sounds, it is still a catch against that side effect of violence against women. 
Because it says, okay, if you find a woman and are attractive, you can take her as your wife, okay? So it allows this. But this is an interesting thing. In the, the Old Testament has many rules against rape. You're not allowed to do that, right? You may take her as your wife. You can't just have sex with this woman. You have to take her as your wife. And not only that, you have to take her into your home and yes, shave her head and trim her nails and put aside the clothes that she was wearing when she was captured. I don't have, I, can, I, I don't have good reasons for that. But you have to let her live in your house and mourn her fa- father and mother for a full month. And then you may go into her husband and, and she shall be your wife. Now, again, we're dealing with a gross and imperfect world. And by our standards, every part of this is horrible. However, it is a check and a balance against the reality that that sexual assault is a side effect of war. And it includes in that that like you have to take some time and remove yourself from the heat of battle. And this woman is your wife, not a slave, not a captive. You, she is not your property. She is a person. And what's interesting to me is that the Bible specifically states that for the society it's instructing, when you go to war, you treat the people that you are fighting against as human beings in the same way that you are. It's very easy, and it's happened multiple times in, in our century, where people go to war and the first thing that goes out the window is the, the humanity of the enemy. Your enemy is not human in the same way that you are. Your enemy is less than. Your enemy is a cockroach, as they said in Rwanda. Your enemy is a rat, as they've said in other places. Your enemy is some sort of vermin that is dangerous and needs to be exterminated in order to preserve the safety of your people. That is not what the Bible talks about when it, says, it talks about going to war. The people that you are dealing with are human beings. And if you take a woman, you wait, you take some time, and then this woman is your wife. It ain't great. But it's better than what we got now. And this is where it gets interesting. Because now we get to the trees. So Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 19 and 20, says something really, really interesting. Let's pay attention to the trees. It says, when you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works against the city that you are at war with until, until, until it war with you until it falls. So this is interesting. First, we have the, the, just the, the wisdom of long-term planning. That like If you're going to lay siege to a city and siege wars, the way th- things worked back then, it could take a really, really long time. 
Um, especially if the city, like multiple cities in in the Middle East, in the ancient Near East, uh, had springs in the center, so you weren't going to be able to 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 cut off the water supply. Uh, and then you had to worry about food and fruit, right? So you were hoping to to, to starve them out. If 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 so, you had to be there a long time, and the, and the fruit trees would provide food for you. Well, what's interesting is that. There's also in this an understanding of two things. One, that the land is going to be here a lot more than a lot longer than you are, and the land is going to last a lot longer than this war is. And whoever happens to be here at the end of this war, be it you or someone else, is going to have to eat. And summer and winter and springtime and harvest are going to come. And the people that live here can eat the fruit of this land. And it says, I love this phrase, our trees people that you should besiege them. There's an understanding in going to war that we are not at war with the land. The land is not our enemy. Even if people happen to be, and they shouldn't, but even if they happen to be, the land is not our enemy. And I think that that's really interesting, especially in the way that we fight wars in our century. Again, going back to my 18 hours of Vietnam War uh, documentary watching, it was estimated that at least 4.5 million acres of forest were destroyed by the Americans in order to attempt to expose supply lines coming from North Vietnam into South Vietnam. And, And we can say that 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 the Americans needed felt that that needed to happen in order to to provide for the safety of their people. However, the people of Vietnam <laughs> generations after that war is gone are still dealing with the massive effects of deforestation. And that's that's just 4.5 million acres in Vietnam. That we I haven't even gotten into Cambodia or Laos. And the way that we fight wars now with, with, with minefields left behind for people to work with, with absolute destruction of nature and, and trees, and the ultimate fear, which is nuclear war, which destroys the environment potentially for all of us, it is an interesting focus that the ancient, in the ancient world, in this ancient literature, whether you believe it's godly or not, they pointed out that, like, we're not fighting with the land, guys. And we need to have these trees in order to survive next year, whoever happens to win. So don't destroy the land. Our fight is not with the land. So, as people who are attempting to take the Bible seriously, at least, and if you believe that the Bible is God's word, then you have to take it seriously. If you don't believe that the Bible is God's word, at least understand that you agree that some people are trying to use it to control your life. So we can evaluate how our wars are according to the Bible, according to the book that Either you believe or some people who are trying to control you believe. And I think it's fair for us 
to evaluate their wars based on, on at least three categories. And this is what they are. The first category upon which you can evaluate any war that your leaders happen to be getting you into, according to the Bible, is are the fighters coerced? Are people forced into it? Is there shame if they don't go? Is there an allowance for for nonviolent intervention? Is there are people feeling forced into it economically? I think that that's a good question to ask of any of our militaries. Are people forced and coerced into participating into a war, uh, participating in a war that they aren't really that interested in participating in? Because in the ancient world, if you wanted to go to war and then you look up and there's no one there, then you have to ask yourself a question. Is God genuinely calling me to this? And if he is, then I'm supposed to go into this war alone with only God on my side. And what God has promised in the Bible, in the literature, according to the rules of the story, is that if he has called you to it, if there is one person fighting, then you will win. And if you need to bring all of these coerced people into battle with you, then maybe it's not really God's will. The second thing where place that we can evaluate uh, our country's war efforts is what are the allowances for non-combatants? Is it clear who combatants and non-combatants are? And that is a decision that we as the attacking force make. And even if someone happens to be attacking at the moment who is part of that and placing themselves within a combatant group, as soon as the immediate danger is over, they are no longer a combatant because they fall into the category of people that we have agreed are non-combatants. So if you're dealing with a child soldier who is attacking you, then obviously soldiers can defend themselves and, and use the force that they have to to make themselves safe and others. This is the rules of the game that you have unfortunately played. But what are you doing to minimize that death? And after you have captured a child soldier, are you treating them as a soldier or as a child? This is the thing that we fell into with the Omar Khadr thing. We ought to, by our own laws, have started to treat him as a child because that's what we had agreed that he was. So are we keeping our promises to other people and to ourselves? And are we doing our best to to minimize the effects on non-combatants, especially those who would be the victim of weaponized sexual assault. Because as much as we want to believe that it's only the bad guys that do that and our people don't, history and common sense tell us that that's not true. And what are we doing to minimize and affect that? And then third, are we caring for the land? Are we making war on people, or on the environment. And as we go through the Dirt City Bible Hour, you're going to find out that the Bible says way more about taking care of the environment than a lot of the contemporary uh, people who talk about the Bible would be willing to admit. Not in a way that's going to make environmentalists super happy, <laughs> because it's still pretty uh, human-centric. But there is an expectation that... We do not do damage that lasts beyond our generation. And I think that that would be a fair way to evaluate. Are are our children and grandchildren, or even worse, the children and grandchildren of the place we have attacked, 
or their children and grandchildren are going to be dealing with the re- with the effects on the land that we have caused in our opposition and violence toward them. War is, I think it's safe to say biblically that, that war is always bad. But it's sometimes unnecessary bad, it seems, biblically. But even in engaging in this necessary bad, there are rules about how you do it. And for the faithful or the faithless, we can evaluate the wars that we're getting into based on the way that we're treating both the people on our side, the people on their side, and the land that we have to share when this is done. And if we're not taking these things into consideration, then we're just not waging war biblically. 